Coming out of the record cold that much of the United States recently experienced, energy policy is something that many are talking about. What is government's role in ensuring sound energy infrastructure? And what policies would help break down barriers while protecting people from being taken advantage of? In this episode of Insight to Action, former federal regulator Clint Woods and Stand Together's Erica Jednick lay out the vision for such an energy policy. Here we go. Energy is one of those things um, that just covers a lot of territory. I mean, there's a lot of real estate involved here, Erica and and, uh, Clint, that, that we could talk about for probably hours and hours, you know, on end, just maybe just about nuclear or just about uh, natural gas, if you wanted to talk about any of those. But let's start where we always start. Um, What is the situation with energy policy right now? And what is it that we think good looks like? What is our vision for a, a energy policy that breaks barriers and helps create a society of mutual benefit? Well, Dwayne, that's a great, great question. Uh, I think in, in many ways, uh, energy policy is a microcosm of, of a lot of uh, the policy areas that, that Americans for Prosperity and Stand Together uh, engage on. Uh, it is a question of, of, of how uh, we can break barriers uh, to enable opportunity. It is about the relationship between uh, economic freedom um, and, and the ways in which we live our lives, uh, the ability to, to pursue opportunities, um, and in many ways, a, a top-down approach that's been tried over the years at the uh, you know, state, federal, and international level when it comes to energy, environmental, and, and climate policy uh, that constrains choices, that, that uh, replaces consumer preferences with politically preferred uh, energy sources. Um, and really, I think in many ways, our, our approach to, to, to energy policy um, is about how to remove uh, those top-down uh, policy preferences and enable bottom-up innovation that not only uh, matches up consumers with the energy sources that they want to use to drive a car, uh, to heat their home, uh, to, to power their appliances in our increasingly electrified world, uh, but then also uh, that, that, uh, that, that, that enables them to, to have that freedom and, and really kind of to utilize energy to, to pursue a wide variety of ends. Uh, there's this phrase that, that Julian Simon, uh, an economist uh, in the 1970s that was fairly prominent, uh, used in describing energy as the master resource that really enables uh, all other aspects of our lives. And, and if you think about if you're a low-income American who, uh, facing a pandemic, um, is looking at your electricity bills and, and what you pay at the gas station and uh, thinking about how you get to work when this, when the lockdown ends and, and the ways in which you can uh, keep your family uh, warm and well-fed in the wintertime, it all is related to energy. And so I think in many ways it's about the elimination of barriers often in place by government um, that keep us from utilizing energy to 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 uh, really important ends. What do these barriers look like? I mean, we can sit and talk about barriers, but that's really kind of a vague concept or a vague idea. I, I'm I'm curious how you see these barriers actually manifesting themselves in real life. Yeah, so I think there's a, a number of, of really good examples, and they they extend uh, when you think about the different mechanisms that the government has to dictate policy. Uh, they extend from literal prohibition, right? And, and I think we talked on a previous podcast about the idea of, of prohibition in regulatory policy and, and the Baptists and bootleggers and the ways in which um, sometimes government policy that, that limits options like 
uh, prohibiting alcohol, or in the case of energy, sometimes requiring alcohol in your gas tank, um, you know, get, have very, very odd uh, bedfellows in terms of support. Uh, so in some cases, it is a literal ban. You cannot build a new power plant of this type. Um, in some cases, it is a restriction that dramatically increases costs. Um, in many cases, our, our, our energy and environmental uh, statutes lay out a system that is two-tiered, uh, that protects incumbents. It says um, if you currently operate uh, this type of an energy source or, or if you uh, generate, transmit, distribute, uh, or sell this energy resource, you're okay. But anybody new, any new market entrant is not. It a, serves a gate gatekeeping function. Um, and as a result of, of those types of policies, uh, you know, many of our, our important elements of our energy infrastructure are really, really, really old. Uh, the average age of a nuclear plant in America is nearly 40 years old, and we haven't built one in decades. Uh, coal plants average age is also 40. Uh, similarly, we haven't built a new fully fledged refinery in the United States um, in over 30 years. So there's uh, quite a bit of atrophy. And if you think about, you know, whether it's transmission lines or pipelines, uh, think about the different things that you use that have an internal combustion engine or that rely upon electricity. Um, the idea that we're using technology that is decades old is really a symptom of, of many of those top-down policies that, that, you know, in many ways, you think about the idea of a permit. I know a lot of our uh, AFP and, and a lot of our partners have made dramatic progress when it comes to the idea of licensing around occupations. To do virtually anything in our country requires a permit and often requires a permit that specifies uh, what you can do, how much you can emit in terms of, of air pollution um, and water pollution, et cetera, um, and in many ways uh, restrict the ability to, to innovate, to create new opportunities, um, to connect consumers with uh, what they would like. Um, and so I think it, it, it can kind of be seen, and really in many ways, many of those barriers are not about a particular energy source. but end up impacting everything from offshore wind turbines to nuclear power plants. I want to make sure everybody understands. One of the things that I fight against that, that people on the on the uh, podcast fight against is the cur something called the curse of knowledge, where we believe that we know something and therefore we assume everyone else knows something. And I, I one of my key roles here is to make sure that when we say something, that we don't we don't fall victim to that curse of knowledge. And so I want to make sure that everyone understands what you mean when you talk about Baptists and bootleggers and how that odd pairing often erects barriers. Yeah, so so Baptists and bootleggers is a concept that was popularized by an economist named Bruce Yandel, um, who, who uh, was at both Clemson University as well as the Mercatus Center, um, and and really articulates the way in which uh, prohibition and and uh, you know constitutional amendment to restrict and then. Uh, the revocation of that amendment to restrict the sale of alcohol in the United States uh, led to to an odd alliance between, uh, you know, religious uh, folks from the Baptist faith um, who wanted to restrict alcohol uh, for moral reasons and then bootleggers um, who wanted to sell alcohol um, and were more than happy to have uh, a market that was prohibited and, and thus uh, the ability to operate in a black market. Um, and so in many ways, uh, you often see when it comes to to competition um, around energy, um, and this, this certainly extends to uh, what you put in your gas tank, uh, what what uh, the power lines uh, are, 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 you know, the energy that's generated that comes to your house via power lines, um, the ability to, uh, you know, use different different fuels for home heating. Some places natural gas, some places propane, some places fuel oil, some places electricity. Um, in many of those ways, our policies um, have been driven by uh, competition that is, I think. Uh, not a representation of good profit, an effort to prohibit 
the ability to, to sell um, you know, uh, the, the products of your competitors. And so in many ways, we've seen that in energy policy. Uh, a number of states, for example, have renewable portfolio standards um, that require that a certain percentage of energy come from certain preferred, uh, you know, politically preferred uh, energy sources. Um, and then similarly, we've got prohibitions. A dozen states have de facto prohibitions on building new nuclear power plants in their states. Um, so I think those are those are examples of, of you know, an alliance certainly between com competitors um, as well as uh, well-intentioned advocates, um, sometimes for environmental reasons, sometimes for uh, preferring a particular energy technology, often uh, reflecting, uh, you know, a sort of not in my backyard mentality about certain technologies. Um, and so I think in many ways, uh, the story of government invention, intervention um, in energy markets is, is, is really kind of reflects that Baptist and bootleggers, um, you know, anecdote that I think is, is uh, very helpful in understanding uh, regulatory capture um, and the way that our regulatory system is often, uh, uh, you know, developed at the request of the regulated. I was, I was I sitting was, there thinking about the fact that we will work with anyone to do good, meaning we'll work with anybody to break through these barriers and to create a society of mutual benefit. And then the Baptist and bootleggers idea is kind of the bizarro version of us. They'll work with anybody to make sure that those barriers stay in place to their own benefit. But I, then I also thought it isn't always to their own benefit. They aren't always being uh, very selfish or conniving or, or, you know, dirty and evil. A lot of these people who are doing these things, who are, who are part of the, the erection of barriers they they have this faith that the, what they're doing is best for society, and I I don't know. There, there's that part of my brain that really wanted to almost dehumanize and demonize, and I just wanted to make sure that just that recognition that the opposition isn't always doing things because they're they're bad people. A lot of times, what they're doing is because they think that's best for society. It's just that what we've seen when you look back at society throughout history is that when you respect the, the four reinforcing principles, when you have a respect for equal rights and, and try to build mutual benefit and work towards openness and self-actualization, that actually builds better societies than top-down central planning and control. Erica, you were about uh, to say something and I stepped on you and I apologize for that, but I wanted to go back to you. No, that's okay. Thank you, Dwayne. Um, and I think that's an important note, right, that we can find common ground with others. And, you know, I think we do have very similar goals. So, you know, the Stand Together community is very interested in fighting energy poverty. And that is the amount that the average household in America spends on energy, everything from home heating oil to the gas that they put in their car and transportation, right? So I think we actually have a lot of similar goals of fighting energy poverty, uh, fighting cronyism, and then also environmental progress. One of the most uh, interesting things that I've learned from working with Clint over the past number of months is actually how top-down energy policies do not necessarily equate to environmental progress. And we've seen states like Alaska, West Virginia, others where uh, have more free market policies and actually carbon dioxide emissions have gone down in comparison to California. That's the beauty of, of, of this dispersed <laughs> what, what am I trying to say? That's, that's the beauty of, of not having a top-down one-size-fits-all solution. 
because when you have these different laboratories, they will find different solutions that work for them because, believe it or not, people are doing different things in different ways uh, for different reasons. When we look at our energy policy, and you, you were mentioning earlier uh, about nuclear, th- there's almost a de facto ban on nuclear energy nationwide just because of all all the hoops they have to jump through. And I, I'm curious, do, do we take a position on that? Because when I look at nuclear power, what's it cost, like a billion dollars in 10 years to get this done? And what concerns me about that is if, if I'm an investor and I'm looking to build a nuclear power plant, 10 years could honestly be three different presidents with three different administrations with three different sets of, of uh, regulations. Is that wrong? Yeah. So I think it's a really good question, Dwayne. And I think I think it, it certainly and nuclear is an excellent example of this for a wide variety of reasons. I think in many ways, our conversations around energy and environmental policy, there's there's a gorilla in the room and, and it's often, uh, you know, discussions and, and folks who want to, I think, discuss climate change exclusively. Right. And nuclear certainly fits in the category of something that uh, in almost every instance would would displace energy sources that, that, that emit uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. I think you're exactly right. Um, and so there's a wide variety of barriers. I think it's important that, that you know, especially when we think about the institution of government, all of these barriers are, are to some degree well-intentioned, as, as you articulated. And, I, you know, as you know, from my background as a, a recovering regulator at both EPA as well as state environmental regulators, I think um, it's really important that we keep that uh, top of mind and avoid that demonization. But uh, you, you think about, we have a, a very elaborate system that developed, um, you know, after World War II, as as uh, we started to develop nuclear energy, uh, sort of top-down program, uh, bipartisan commission uh, at the federal level, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is what we call it now, uh, that's responsible for a wide variety of permitting and licensing. Um, and, you know, there's barriers that are associated with cost, right? And this exists for virtually any kind of power plant, right? It costs a lot of money. And in many ways, uh, you know, states and, and ratepayers aren't really interested in, in paying the upfront cost for a billion or $10 billion uh, facility uh, before they get to use it. Um, and nuclear has a lot of benefits on the back end too. It, it Once once you've built it, uh, it has uh, much lower costs, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, base load, reliable electricity. Um, but then you've got a wide variety of questions around nuclear waste. So we've seen a, a really interesting set of innovations. As I mentioned, 38 years, I think, is the average age of, of our nuclear reactors, um, and uh, virtually none have been built in, in the last several decades. Uh, you've seen a movement, I think, partly because of a desire to have more of a decentralized bottom-up electricity system. Uh, you see this with folks with rooftop solar, et cetera. Uh, but a move towards smaller, what are called modular reactors um, that can be deployed, uh, you know, probably not enough to power half a city, but enough to power uh, a number of neighborhoods um, that might be able to be useful for for forward deployed military bases or in particular areas of the West where you don't have a huge population. Um, and so we've seen a number of innovative company, uh, companies make some progress on, on licensing and permitting, um, and, and it minimizes some of the nuclear waste questions. And, and folks may have heard of Yucca Mountain um, in Nevada, which is, is a, very much a political football that has held up, uh, I think, nuclear innovation in our country. So there's a lot of barriers uh, that, that, that are out there. And I think in many ways, the question is, you know, what do consumers want? And we've seen in different different instances, folks uh, prefer different things. I think generally speaking, they want energy that is affordable, that is reliable. Uh, they tend to prefer energy that is more dense. Uh, so there's this idea of, of energy or power density. So you're literally thinking about how much land do you need to use to produce a unit of energy? Um, and in many ways, folks don't want 
giant sprawling facilities or uh, power lines that run across uh, national parks and, and things like that. So in many ways, they want uh, the densest power possible. Um, and then there's a, a lot of other preferences that, that you've seen reflected in the way pe people purchase energy. Um, and so we want to remove virtually all of those barriers. And we think, it, you know, in that in that way, all all of the above can compete. And it's kind of a trite phrase that politicians use, but it also is true. Um, I think there is a place for virtually any energy resource. And so we would be advocates for energy in the same way we'd be advocates for a wide variety uh, of energy resources and the removal of those barriers, many of which apply across the board to everything from wind to solar to nuclear to coal-fired power plants. When we look at at energy we, we, we've talked about breaking barriers. We've talked about society mutual benefit. Let's start digging into the positions we take, starting with equal rights. How does the current set of, of regulations, how does the current set of, of actions being taken by governments on the various levels, how do those violate equal rights? And what is it that, that we're advocating that would be more respectful for equal rights? Sure, Dwayne. I think we can start with some of the cronyism and bailout proposals that we've seen across the state. Now, it depends on, you know, different types of energy, but what we see are, you know, these power companies and, and others who are politically connected advocating for subsidies. So they're advocating, you know, to get money from the state, right? So really residents, their taxes to fund their business over others. And let's just take solar, for example, since, you know, in my home state of New Jersey, there are solar subsidies as well as, you know, plenty of other states around the country. If solar is a great idea, right, there should be private investors who are willing to back that, right? And we don't always we don't always see that. So what we what we end up with is preferential treatment of some types of energy over others. You get these really cronyist state deals with politicians. And I think as far as equal rights go, then those other those other energy companies just don't have an equal equal playing field. There's also the idea. I'm sorry, Clint, I'll, I'll get back to you in a second. But there's also the idea that it isn't just that it's it's unequal rights for those competing in that business or in that area. But I think about myself, you know, like we all do, what's in my self-interest? I think about how these cronious policies are going to impact me because it isn't it isn't going to result in a more efficient energy system. It isn't going to result in a less expensive energy system. It's actually going to increase the cost because we're subsidizing inefficiencies. We're not allowing the market to function. We're not allowing knowledge to go where it goes so that, that the, the free market can actually create a higher quality product for a lower price. So you're violating my, my right to have access to the most efficient highest quality, lowest cost product, which lowers my standard of living in order to increase someone else's. And that is, that's wrong. That's immoral. Clint, I'm sorry I stepped on you, but please go ahead. No, Dwayne, I think actually you teed up uh, what I was going to say perfectly, because I, I think you're exactly right. In many ways, I think energy and environmental policy is a microcosm of some of the things we talked about in terms of regulation um, and the ways in which uh, in, in many ways, elected officials want to pass the buck um, for blame um, and maximize credit, right? And so sometimes that is through delegating responsibility uh, to executive branch agencies. 
Um, sometimes it's through, uh, you know, subsidies that are tough to tough to hold, uh, uh, you know, elected officials accountable for. Um, and, and in many ways, I think it's 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 worth thinking about. You know, there's a lot of discussion right now about taxes and carbon taxes and cap and trade programs and command and control regulation and different kinds of subsidies. I, in my mind, if you take everything we've done as energy policy for the past several decades, that includes tax credits, uh, direct subsidies. Uh, taxes uh, on gasoline um, and other other things uh, that includes regulation on a wide variety of sources. You know, all of those are, are end up being de facto taxes are often hidden, right? That impact you, whether it's on your bill as a taxpayer, right, that you have to pay each year, um, or whether it's on literally on your electricity bill or what you pay at a gas pump. Um, and in many ways, I think Erica teed this up earlier, but you, think, you know about equality of opportunity. Um, and I think it's really important to, to, to think about the ways in which virtually all of those policies have a regressive impact on the least among us. Um, so if you think about low-income American household, it, it is pretty astonishing uh, if you look at, 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 at folks uh, at the, the bottom rung of our society who are struggling to make ends meet even before the pandemic. Uh, they pay, in most instances, more than 20 percent of their after-tax income on energy broadly defined. So that includes electricity, home heating, and the fuel that you put in your vehicle. That's a lot of money. And in some states, it's, it's above 30%. Uh, on average, uh, those same households pay about 40% uh, or a little bit higher on, on housing. Um, so you think about just how much of a regressive impact, even a small increase in electricity prices or, or fuel prices can have uh, on those individuals. And I think it's one where, um, you know, obviously the politically connected are, are in some ways asking for uh, higher energy prices for everybody uh, without consideration uh, of those impacts and, and exacerbation of energy poverty that I think is an important uh, element uh, as we think about energy in the context of equal rights. When we think about politically connected when it comes to energy, I start thinking about things like cap and trade, and I see people making a lot of money off of cap and trade. Maybe I'm, I'm it's my sources, I don't know, I, but I see this, and I was wondering first, could you explain what cap and trade is, and is that the kind of thing you're talking about when you see you know, the politically connected benefiting from this? Absolutely. Yeah. So, Dwayne, I think cap and trade is, is there's a, a few different models for how we should regulate um, environmental issues. Uh, cap and trade is something that we've tried uh, in some cases to, to reduce uh, sulfur dioxide. Uh, folks who are, are old like me probably recall uh, concerns about acid rain in the 1980s. Um, and so Congress, as part of the, the, the Clean Air Act amendments of, of 1990, developed a, a system in which uh, power plants uh, had had basically established a cap uh, of, of how much sulfur dioxide you could emit. So it was literally a permit to pollute um, and then allowed for uh, those facilities to trade with each other so that you would have theoretically more efficient uh, decisions under that regulation. Um, so cap and trade, uh, when, when people invoke it now, uh, are usually talking about carbon dioxide. Um, so it's one model of how we ought to address uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, that contribute to climate change. Um, another model is is reflected through the most of the other parts of the Clean Air Act, which is more of a command and control regulation, which is uh, think of it more as kind of the Ten Commandments. So you 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 focus either on the general environment and establish national standards for how uh, that, that that apply to state and local governments, or you apply it to a specific sector and you say you cannot emit more than this from that smokestack. Um, and, and often a very inflexible style of regulation. And then a, a third model is, is a tax. 
Um, so theoretically, you you uh, you know when it comes to things that are emitted in the air, you put a tax on each ton emitted. Um, so there are a lot of folks who are in favor of uh, of of imposing a tax that would apply uh, to greenhouse gases that are emitted from a wide variety of sources. Um, and so I think many of those things we've seen in practice, um, you know, internationally, uh, there's been efforts under the Paris Agreements, as well as the Kyoto Treaty, um, that, that a number of countries have, have adopted both carbon taxes and cap and trade. We have some regional programs in the United States that cover multiple states. Um, the Northeast has something called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Um, we also have, um, you know, there's been proposals, I think, uh, a really key takeaway from recent elections, but also recent legislative activity is legislators realize these things are not good for their constituents. They dramatically raise prices. They have a regressive impact. Uh, and really, they haven't done much to solve the underlying problem. Um, so we, there's a lot of good evidence of that. But I think probably none is better than the U.S. has made much more dramatic progress when it comes to greenhouse gases in the last decade and a half than the rest of the world. Uh, similarly, uh, most of the states outside of cap and trade or carbon tax programs, the United States have done much better. Uh, Erica mentioned there's uh, uh, nearly 10 states that have reduced per capita, meaning for each individual CO2 emissions, five times more than California since 2007. Um, similarly, there's uh, an effort right now by the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, without the consent of their legislature, uh, to join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which has existed for about a decade, even though Pennsylvania has reduced coal-related CO2 emissions more than the 10 members of that group have combined in the last decade. Uh, so really not much evidence that these programs work. They're really a reflection of top-down thinking that raises prices, uh, reduces consumer choices, uh, and ultimately undermines economic opportunity in the places that have adopted them. So that's why we have uh, pretty serious concerns with, with that as a, uh, as a policy option. The Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Erica, that's also known as REGI, isn't it? That, that's correct, Duane. And uh, Americans for Prosperity will be active on that. Um, this upcoming year. And, and Clint, it may be worth discussing a little bit about specifically the, the Northeast with uh, TCI. Yeah, that's an, an excellent point. I think we're, we're expecting more policy along these lines, but the, the transportation and climate initiative is in many ways a complement to the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Um, so REGI applies to fossil fuel, uh, which means coal, natural gas, um, and, and uh Sorry, and oil-fired uh, power plants, so so stationary sources uh, that generate electricity in those states. The low carbon, uh, excuse me, the transportation and climate initiative uh, is more of an approach of a low carbon fuel standard. So really designed to impact, uh, you know, fuels that are sold and distributed in the state. Um, so the evidence is, is pretty strong that there's uh, substantial emissions reductions that are happening without these top-down programs, and that this would function as a gasoline tax. Um, so in states like New Hampshire um, that have, uh, you know, I think a governor that has concerns about the idea of dramatically raising gas taxes in a time of, of economic uncertainty, states that have uh, requirement that their legislature, uh, uh, you know, endorse any regional um, or, or state program uh, to regulate uh, these type of greenhouse gases have, have largely rejected the program. Um, uh, but several others have adopted it. And so I think we're going to see... Um, 
in many ways, not only this uh, regional effort, but also a very much top-down federal effort. In many ways, the Clean Air Act um, is designed to you know, establish national standards that then are carried out at the state level. So we, we fully expect that, that under uh, the future administration here, um, that a number of policies will come down that, that attempt to focus uh, almost the exclusion of all other environmental issues on greenhouse gases and really try to commandeer state environmental programs, uh, really force them uh, virtually at gunpoint to uh, to join these regional compacts, uh, to adopt very aggressive and costly um, and regressive uh, uh, state greenhouse gas programs that will raise prices for the least among us. Um, and so they're, they're, unfortunately, there's more uh, to come. And I think in many ways, that's why it's important to articulate how bottom-up innovations have demonstrated to be a much, much better uh, approach to these issues. A lot of what we talked about so far <clears throat> when regarding uh, equal rights also applies to mutual benefit, which makes sense because mutual benefit builds off of um, the idea of equal rights. Reading from our, our uh, vision, when the values and laws of society respect the dignity of individuals and uphold their rights, people succeed by creating value for others, motivating them to assist rather than harm one another. My question to lead into mutual benefit I can hear people saying, look, we need regulations like we're putting in place in order to respect the equal rights and mutual benefit. Because if we don't take these actions, we, we risk life on Earth as we know it due to climate change. How do you respond to someone who says these are needed because we are, we are fighting a, a global war against global warming? Yeah, Dwayne, if you listen to a lot of that rhetoric, it can certainly be it can certainly be alarming. Um, and I, I do think there's um, a lot of, of work that needs to be that needs to take place to protect the environment around the world. However, I do think that's a false choice. You know, we touched on it a bit um, so far, but I think it, it's really a powerful contrast between California and other states that don't have these top-down climate policies as to, you know, the ability to innovate and protect the environment. So I think that's a false choice that it's either, you know, these the Green New Deal or we're going to die, right? And uh, climate change is going to take over the earth. I think a lot of really great innovation has already happened over the past 20 years and can continue to happen if we don't let politicians decide our, right, <laughs> the best ways to, to go about, about environmental progress here. Um, you know, uh, I, I've worked for a number of elected officials. I've been a, a staffer as well and, and worked on bills. And I can tell you that I personally don't think it, it, it should be with politicians deciding, you know, what what we have already seen as inv environmental progress in this country. It's it's really a false choice. I like I like that you brought that up, and it reminds me of something that I believe you and I have talked about. Clint and I have probably talked about on this podcast. I bring it up all the time, but when we when we look at these actions by government, we often see people who are putting rules or regulations in place because they are they think they are putting forward a solution and once again i i give people the benefit of the doubt i believe they are putting these regulations in place because it, deep down in their heart they believe they are doing what's best not only for themselves but for the country the world future generations the problem 
that I see, however, is very often they see themselves putting forward solutions and not recognizing that there are trade-offs, not recognizing what Hazlitt has taught, what Bastia has taught, that for every action there are two sets of uh, consequences. There are those that are seen, there are those that are unseen, and, and Hazlitt built on that in uh, Economics in One Lesson, saying you can't just look at the, re the consequences of a certain policy on one group at one point of time, but you've got to look at the, the consequences for all groups over an extended period of time. And that, that is where I see the breakdown in mutual benefit because the proponents of a lot of these policies don't tend to put forward that information. It's, it's always do this or we die. And we don't recognize very often that there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs and we need to pick the best set of trade-offs that we can. And I think what you've brought up when you talk about how different states are doing better than other states, we're seeing that when you allow for those sets of trade-offs to be taken, you can see what's going to work best for the most people. I guess I didn't have a question there, just a comment. <laughs> well, and I, sorry, I, I, I was just gonna say, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think the, the uh, you know, in many ways, the innovation in energy policy, and, and there's been not that much, right? We talked about the age of a lot of our energy infrastructure, the need uh, for updates that naturally brings with them, uh, you know, efficiency, uh, and, and really in many ways, uh, the discussion around climate change is the same as the discussion around other environmental issues and different. Um, and, and in many ways, it lends itself more to bottom-up innovation because literally reducing greenhouse gas emissions from any engineered system, whether it's a power plant or your lawnmower, is to become more efficient. Um, and, and in many ways, the Green New Deal and all, a lot of top-down policy is designed uh, to prohibit that engineered system and shift you to something else. Um, and I think you know, in my mind, any discussion of energy policy is entirely incomplete without a reflection on just how much things have changed in the last 15 years. So if, if uh, I think back to 2007, so that's when the Supreme Court uh, determined that, that uh, carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases are a pollutant under, and that was the Massachusetts versus EPA decision. I think there was a book I read around that time, uh, 2005, which was called High Noon for Natural Gas. Uh, which which followed a number of books about the idea of peak oil um, and that in North America, but also around the world, uh, we were likely to hit what was called Hubert's Peak. So the, uh, the, the, the point at which uh, known reserves of oil and natural gas uh, would start going down. We literally would run out of oil in a few decades. And as in the meantime, uh, prices would escalate dramatically. Uh, we would need, you know, uh, the need for uh, a frantic shift uh, to new energy sources. And, um, then, you know, a very short period of time later, you had what is really a, a revolution in, in unconventional oil and gas techniques in North America. Um, so hydraulic fracturing or fracking um, is one element, uh, but also horizontal drilling and, and other techniques have been incredibly important uh, to, in many ways, fundamentally reshape not only how we get electricity um, and, and other energy in this country, uh, but also our greenhouse gas emissions profile, uh, you know, compared to what the revolution of cheap natural gas um, from North America um, has done when it, as it relates to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, virtually all top-down policy in the United States that includes uh, you know, command and control regulation um, on everything from power plants to vehicles to aircraft to oil and gas um, has 
been less than a rounding error compared to those bottom-up innovations because uh, natural gas emits about half uh, the greenhouse gases that, that coal-fired uh, power plants do, and so has displaced a large amount. And that's really one of the really key uh, reasons why the United States has outperformed the world when it comes to greenhouse gases and a wide variety of other environmental indicators. So I think in many ways, uh, you know, there's no central planner who could have predicted, and certainly no academic who was writing books uh, 15 years ago uh, could have predicted uh, the truly, uh, you know, revolutionary impact that's had. And I know Erica's had some experience with how how hydraulic fracturing and oil and gas have, have shaped communities. Thanks, Clint. Yeah, it's it's amazing. We we've talked about environmental progress. We've talked about consumer costs here, and also a bit about the Green New Deal and and just the trillions it would it would cost the entire country, right? Without any kind of plan. The one other area, Dwayne, is just how some of the this new technology, take frac fracking, for example, has totally revitalized communities. So, you know, in, in New Jersey, I've driven around northeast Pennsylvania for most most of my life, right? Just uh just uh visiting family and whatnot. And it's amazing to me how there are communities that ten years ago, twenty years ago, very um very hit by by poverty right um just if you you drive through and you can tell that the are very struggling uh communities well post now that fracking um has gone into northeast pennsylvania specifically and you'll see people with new pickup trucks right they're fixing up their homes um downtowns have been revitalized and more jobs have come to areas, right? So it's really improved um, a number of different ways of life in this country. And I think we should be celebrating that. We should be talking to those folks who have those jobs, how it's improved the quality of life for their families, and not just always think about it, you know, perhaps from uh, at least what some of uh, you hear about the Green New Deal is that it's, it's, climate change and we're going to die. Uh, there's so many different trade-offs here, Dwayne. You're right. There, there are so many different trade-offs and it's difficult. That's why, that's why the top-down solutions so very often fail because it's difficult to have that perfect knowledge to know exactly what this action is going to do across a wide spectrum, which is why when we look at our, our vision, the respect for equal rights, the desire for mutual benefit, both of those things lead to openness. And that's allowing the free movement of ideas, resources, and people that generate knowledge, innovation, and opportunity. When you have top-down solutions, very often you restrict that openness, you restrict that innovation, which is which is why it is, it's a dangerous thing to have a, a central place dictating policy for the entire country. Missouri, believe it or not, is much different than California. And so to have a policy that that is the same for both places, that restricts innovation, that restricts knowledge. If I if I am told what I have to do in this state, why would I go looking for new things to do, especially when you have to go against the bureaucracy that makes it difficult to make these changes? That's in my my thinking anyway, as how openness relates to our vision for energy policy. I'm I'm confident that both of you can build on that. Clint, if you don't mind, how does openness relate to our vision for energy? Yeah, Dwayne, I think that's a great question. And in many ways, I think about 
the relationship of, of, you know, we, we, we address energy while thinking, you know, about economic opportunity um, and informed by uh, considerations of a wide variety of, of, of things. And I think in many ways we've seen how top down thinking, you know, uh, undermines uh, that, that economic opportunity. Uh, but I think it's also important to think about the other direction, right. And the ways that, that economic opportunity and openness facilitate, uh, you know, energy affordability, reliability, but also environmental progress. And, and uh, this is, you know, an interesting dynamic, but, and often, you know, we don't necessarily think in international scales on these issues, but, um, you know, there's this idea of, of, of it's called the environmental Kuznets curve. And, and in many ways it builds on uh, many of the insights that folks in our community have around, um, uh, you know, the the uh, prioritization of need um, and, and Maslow and, and, and you know, it, essentially uh, the role that income and economic growth and a wide variety of economic indicators play in environmental progress. You see for virtually every country around the world, when you get to a certain level of development, uh, you see dramatic environmental improvement. And then that in, it, it appears to extend uh, not only to a wide variety of air and water and land pollution, uh, but also to greenhouse gases. And then you think about it in, in, in very developed countries um, and the ways in which, you know, demands for environmental quality um, in a capitalist system can help uh, to generate social movements. Right. In many ways, environmentalism is sort of a luxury good. And, and we certainly have not seen that in, in very top down societies with communist or socialist structures, um, you know. Russia uh, and the Soviet Union was an environmental disaster. And, and similarly, most other authoritarian countries are. Uh, we've also seen the ways in which, you know, uh, an absence of economic growth can 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 really undermine environmental compliance uh, with regulations, but also bottom up environmental uh, innovation. And so I think in many ways, thinking about the unintended consequences of top down policy uh, keeps us uh, from the bottom up innovations that allow us to respond to those unintended consequences and to facilitate uh, economic growth that in turn really helps us with, when it comes to environmental stewardship. And I'm sure Erica probably has some additional insights about the ways in which openness uh, relates to energy policy. Yeah, Clint, I think about all the archaic and outdated laws in the country, specifically related to energy policy, and how it's hard to be able to look into the future and say, these are you know, the inventions, these are the products we're going to have in the future. And so we should be constraining ourselves, right? Or our top talent and scientists and investors thinking about how we can innovate for the future. I mean, just think about, you know, maybe this is not the best example, Clint, but like hybrid cars, right? They are now becoming affordable. Like my husband has a, a Honda hybrid, right? And he got it because with a very long commute, it is just, it's cheaper, right? It's more affordable that way. And I think, um, Clint, you mentioned it earlier about lawnmowers and, and other you know products that Americans buy. This is not a, you get one or the other, you know, the more that um, these products can be efficient and use less energy is better. Like Americans are incentivized to buy products that way that are going to be cheaper to maintain and, and use over the long term. So I think that can jive really nicely um, with long-term environmental goals, you know, reducing consumer costs and, and Dwayne, you know, openness here is allowing all of that to happen. And that, that type of innovation without putting into code and statute these very um, restrictive standards, because we, we could, 
you know, totally, there could be inventors and investors who have such, such better ideas in the future. And, and we don't know what we, what we don't know, so to speak. And you have to recognize that you have to understand that we don't know what the next innovation will bring. I, we talk about this in some of the um, different trainings that we've done. Nobody out there would have said, you know, I wish I could carry 5,000 songs in my pocket. But somebody did, and that innovation was allowed. And I know that's kind of a stretch to talk about energy policy, but there's no one who I, – I never thought, what if we could take a nuclear power plant and – Put it in a very small footprint and sink it down about 20 feet, 50 feet. Put it right in the middle of a neighborhood and you could supply power for the entire neighborhood. And you wouldn't have to do... I mean, these are the types of innovations that are out there that barriers prohibit from moving forward. I, I love that idea of that that small footprint power plant, Clint, that you, you spoke about before. And it without the openness, without the the free transfer the free movement of ideas and knowledge we can't get that innovation and so we end up we end up with uh, an inefficient or a, a a system not as efficient as it could be I think that's right and I think it's impossible to predict what's what's around the corner um, but I think there are certain you know incentives matter right and, and in many ways um, it's not only about how much money uh, you know you, you spend on research and development and, and you know that's one of, of many ways that that, that, that the government uh, intervenes there's a, an, an excellent book in a series several series of articles by uh, a professor at Butler University named Peter Grossman who, who's looked at kind of the history of energy policy and really you know, catalogs in great detail that it, 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 it is all kind of built around a presumption of market failure um, that, that usually is wrong or, or outdated by the time it gets addressed um, and what he calls the Apollo fallacy um, which in many ways um, you know the well, I guess whether it's the Manhattan Project or uh, Project Apollo at NASA you know there's been a couple of examples where really big government policies and a focused effort towards a particular objective have, have proven to be be very effective um, and then been applied to virtually every other policy area and failed miserably. And energy, I think, is a perfect example in almost every instance. Uh, it's often not an engineering problem that can be solved by lots of money and smart people and uh, you know doctoral degrees, uh, but is often a commercialization problem and, and a question of what people want and what people are willing to pay for. Um, and, and so I think in, in many ways, uh, you know, the task is not only uh, thinking about you know. Not, you know, getting out of the mental model of energy policy is I like this energy resource. It is also about thinking about the removing of the barriers that will truly allow that next stage innovation to not only succeed, but be, you know, but 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 to uh, be commercialized, uh, to to be widely uh, you know available to be adopted, and that often uh, happens light years faster um, than any government policy or prediction around energy or environmental policy would be. And obviously, we've seen some of these dynamics with the pandemic and vaccine uh, development. Um, in many ways, we need government to get out of the way, and 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 the lessons of uh, at least the last 15 years, but I would argue. Uh, last hundred years is, is about the ways in which um, avoiding those top-down structures, avoiding uh, very heavy-handed government uh, expectations, predictions uh, being mandated, um, ultimately, uh, you know, removing those barriers is a better path to both uh, economic progress as well as environmental progress. And when you look at when you look at self-actualization. This is sometimes people talk about self-actualization and it, it's a difficult concept to discuss when we talk about energy and self-actualization. 
maybe it's 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 difficult for some people to to really wrap their heads around how that works and when i first started thinking about this i thought okay what's the connection let's let's talk about what what we talk about when we say self actualization and from our vision for such a society to exist a society of of mutual benefit and limited barriers um its key institutions, education, community, business, and government remove rather than erect barriers to people realizing their potential and finding fulfillment as more people have the opportunity to use their unique talents to succeed by helping others improve their lives, society flourishes. Now, when you think about energy as it relates to self-actualization, if you take a very short-term look at it, 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 it can be, at least in my opinion, difficult to see the connection. But when you go back and you look at go all the way back to Rockefeller. Rockefeller was fighting against the electric light because it threatened his business making kerosene. Houses across the country lit their houses via kerosene. And he, he didn't want to lose that part of, of the uh, part of the market. So he was against electric lights. But then when the electric light came in and started allowing people to efficiently and, and cheaply light their homes which allowed them to do more activities into the night rather than, oh, well, the sun's down. I guess our day's over. Let's go to bed. And that that increased amount of light allowed them to do things like maybe they wrote poetry during that time. Maybe they painted. Maybe they read books. Maybe they started a, a business. But that access to efficient and inexpensive energy allowed people to do things that they normally couldn't do because they couldn't afford the extra kerosene or they couldn't afford the candles or they couldn't afford things and that you, you you apply that to businesses that are now allowed to do things more efficiently with electricity you can see how cheap efficient energy allows for self-actualization and when you put barriers towards that you're limiting people's access to that and you're limiting their ability to live up to their potential and find fulfillment what did i miss Dwayne, it's a great example. I also think of just cars, <laughs> frankly. And if you go back in the literature, there was a lot that was said about the, you know, just cars when they came out versus horse and buggies, all kind of things, especially like how this was going to hurt women. Um, it was very scandalous. But what we've seen is is just the ability for Americans to get where they need to go, right? Where now cars are far more affordable. It's no longer for the elites, right? And I think, you know, we've talked a bit about this innovation here, but allowing people to live up to their potential. I think of those communities in Northeast Pennsylvania that I know, right, where it is totally the difference to have a steady job, to have a car in the driveway, right, to be able to fix up one's home. Um, and then in other communities around the country, uh, we see you know, uh, some of this energy also funding the school system. Um, so, you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, but as far as sex, uh, self-actualization, it's, it's in a number of different ways and really allowing people to live up to their potential and increasing quality of life in this country. That, that's a great. I, I love the way both of you addressed uh, that. And I was just, just going to add. I think the the example of of, of Rockefeller's concern uh, about energy transition towards electrification. We're seeing a, a similar dynamic right now, and in some ways, um, you know, with some interesting unintended consequences. And, and I think too, you know, as you had a shift from 
kerosene and whale oil uh, to the use of, of electrical lights, you also had, I think, many of the bad elements of cronyism that, that we've touched on a little bit. You had Thomas Edison and Samuel Insull, um, you know, uh, the, the uh, leaders of the dominant company in, in the electrical system, really push hard for uh, vertically integrated monopolies to sell electricity and with a single uh, appointed regulator. So in most states, you still have that, a public utility uh, uh, commission um, that, that oversees the rates for electricity. Some states have, have made some minor uh, nods towards competition, but think about how much innovation we would have had uh, over the last hundred years if you had real competition in those areas. Um, and, and to Erica's point about you know uh, the idea of self-acquisition, obviously energy is the master resource that enables economic opportunity allows you to go to a job that is not right next door to your house, um, you know, allows you to live in a larger house, allows you to, you know, think about uh, uh, opportunities to expand. And in many ways, it goes well beyond that, right? I mean, if you think about travel and recreation, you know, until the railroads in the 1860s, standardized time and time zones didn't exist in the United States because it wasn't a thing, right? You didn't have to worry about needing to cross over multiple time zones and needing to have standardized time. And you never really had to be anywhere on an exact time uh, unless you were going to literally miss the train. Um, and so in many ways that has evolved now to what is our <laughs> highly uh, scheduled lives powered by electricity um, and our ability to travel, uh, you know, across the world in a matter of hours. And, and it's really an astonishing thing. And, and, and uh, you know, energy broadly defined not by energy source, uh, but by affordable, reliable, um, you know, energy uh, that, that, that comes on when you turn the key in your engine or when you uh, flip the switch um, is really kind of the uh, fundamental uh, under uh, fun, the thing that fundamentally uh, underlies for virtually all of modern society that I think is really uh, critical to, to virtually any 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 self-actualization that, that uh, may apply to an individual. So having listened to this entire podcast, if you're if you're um, one of our our colleagues out in the field or perhaps you're an activist that one of our colleagues shared this podcast with, what do you think the next steps they should be taking are? What is basically your call to action? This is this is a a federal issue, obviously, uh, when we start talking about these top down policies, what can they do uh, in their states? What can they do where they're at? How can they take action to help achieve this vision? Dwayne, first thing that they can do is reach out to their grassroots engagement director or their, the state director of the AFP state chapter and, and find out, right, who are the target members in their state who may be supportive of the Green New Deal. Now, we're certainly going to see legislation, but a lot of this will also come from the Biden administration itself. And we need voices out there, the voices of people who benefit, right, from the energy innovation and, and affordable energy that we've discussed, right, whether they're in that, that northeastern uh, Pennsylvania community or New Mexico or Texas, right, I think it's really important to have a dialogue with um, members of Congress, with their district directors. And fortunately, we have, uh, AFP has grassroots infrastructure in 35 different states, a lobbying team that handles um, other non-chapter states. So I think first, first thing that listeners can do is go to their AFP state chapter and find out who they need to talk to. It may be their member of Congress or it may be uh, another one next door and get in touch with that district director so that there's a, a dialogue and that they hear 
those personal testimonials of why affordable energy is so important. And I just add, I think I think it's really important as we think about comparative advantage on many of these issues. I know there's often criticism around our community's engagement on energy, um, but as you can see, I think as part of our work on around economic opportunity, it is absolutely critical. Uh, on many of these debates, there is no one looking out for consumers. Um, and, and some of it's structural, um, some of it's about overriding, uh, you know, environmental objectives, uh, some of it's about the, you know, the way that our regulatory system works and uh, the absence of public participation. But um, you will see in many of these instances, there is no one who is out there uh, working on behalf of, of people in your state. And we're seeing, I think, a lot of things to, to respond to both the opportunities and threats on the horizon. Um, a number of states that are thinking about how they can uh, limit uh, local governments that may want to ban hydraulic fracturing or ban the use of the hookup of natural gas to, to homes and buildings. Uh, we're seeing a number of states that are thinking ahead to what may come down from, from the next administration on energy and environmental issues, seeking more legislative involvement in any state uh, regulatory programs that are developed in response. Um, and so it, feel free to reach out to us because I think we can help maybe identify some of those threats and opportunities and, and really look forward to um, helping to, to, to make sure folks have the tools to, to engage and in many ways re-engage in this very important area. Thanks again to Erica and Clint for taking the time to talk to us today about energy policy. I really hope you got a lot out of this. And if you enjoyed it, please take the time to tell a friend about the podcast. And if you want to go that extra mile, go ahead and leave a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.